This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A heads up that on the show today, we're going to talk about sex. So I'll give you a moment if there are young kids around. If there are teenagers, you might want to keep the radio on. When she was a teen, evangelical Lutheran pastor Nadia Bowles-Weber got messages about sex that just didn't end up working for her. She grew up in a religious community in Colorado Springs that equated holiness with purity. She would later meet countless Christians who found that traditional messages about sex didn't work for them either. Many of them are members of the congregation she founded in Denver, the House for All Sinners and Saints. Welcome to the program, Pastor. Thanks, Ryan. So you are calling for nothing short of a sexual reformation in a new book called Shameless. What does that mean to you, a sexual reformation? Well, it was a it was an intentional word, since I'm a Lutheran theologian, that Martin Luther the thing that sort of sparked the Protestant Reformation was that he saw how the teachings of the church were harming the people in his care. And he decided that he would be more loyal to the people than to the church's teachings. And so he, you know, he made a list of 95 things that he thought they got wrong and things that were specifically harming the people in his care. And he nailed those to the door of the Wittenberg Church in 1517. And that that sparked the Protestant Reformation. And so I just, you know, saw in my life with my friends and with my parishioners that the teachings of the church around sex and gender and sexuality were causing harm directly to the people in my care. So this new book, Shameless, is a mix of your own experience and of interviews that you conducted with Christians who were driven to harm themselves, you found, over their inability to conform. Uh, Before we get into what a Reformation might look like, I just want to note that you ran across your old Christian sex ed book (laughs) for the first time in about 40 years. What struck you about it? Um. There was just lots of language for, quote, God's plan, that God had a plan for people and living in God's special plan for humanity. And it ends up that, like, God's special plan was for everybody, uh, all human beings, to be Christian and heterosexual and cisgender and not have sex before anyone until they marry their one true love and have um, heterosexual sex and then make Christian babies. Like, that's that's God's plan for, for all people on the planet. And that is not uh, a prescription for life that fit your experience. No, not at all. I mean, if you, if you take, if you take, um, like a big circle and it represents every human being on the planet, all of them, every culture, religion, variety, all of God's children. And then inside that huge circle, you draw a smaller circle that that just represents the people who happen to be Christian and heterosexual and cisgender and never have sex with anyone till they marry their one true love and make Christian babies. That is that is a much smaller circle. And I was like, if that's God's plan, I like maybe God planned poorly. I don't know. Like 
that's such a tiny, tiny percentage of humanity. And yet we're all created as sexual beings. And so the message that the only people who are allowed to experience any kind of sexual flourishing at all happens to be the people in that that one tiny little circle made no sense to me since all human beings were created uh, as sexual beings. I mean, I can imagine a conservative Christian thinking, well, of course, most people don't fit into that circle. Mm. Uh, people are sinful. You have to strive to be in that circle. Mm. How would you respond to that? Well, I think that that kind of thinking has um, gotten the church into a great deal of trouble. I mean, all you have to do is look at the Houston Chronicle story that they broke a couple weeks ago about all of the sexual misconduct and all of the predatory behavior in the Southern Baptist Church, for instance. Right. This is not relegated to the Catholic Church by any means. By no means. However, I would I would posit that I I mean I think somebody should just do the research, but I believe that the more sexually repressive the teachings are in a particular Christian tradition, um, the the more likelihood there is of sexually predatory behavior. Because it, it if you repress things and if you say God's will is for you to shut down who you are developed to be and how your body is developed to respond and you shut it down so that it's God's will and everybody who's a leader has to pretend to be living in that even if they're not, it comes out sideways. I mean, I just think if Ted Haggard, for instance, I mean, he was a pastor and down at New Life Church in Colorado Springs, right? And I just, I just wonder if Ted Haggard was in a Christian community that encouraged his integration rather than the repression. If, if what was encouraged was he become an integrated person, sexually, psychologically, spiritually, physically, um, I just think that he would not have eventually been found smoking crack with a male prostitute, for instance. So I think that the repressive teachings actually cause the shadow side of human beings to grow even stronger. You say that that's a feeling you have. It's it's not something that you have evidence to back up. No, but I would just love an academic to do that study. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so you write that we must reach for a new Christian sexual ethic. Yeah. And as counterintuitive as it might seem, you say, the place I'm suggesting we look to for help is the Bible. Yeah. So, yeah, if you were writing that ethic, a new Christian sexual ethic, Mm -hmm. what would it be? Well, instead of it being this list of thou shalt nots, these things that you have to avoid to know that you're good, um, I would steal a page again from Martin Luther. When he was writing about the Ten Commandments in the small catechism, he's like, look, the fifth commandment, which is thou shalt not murder, like that should be kind of a freebie for all of us. That's clearly like the middle space of the bingo card. We can all just check it off right away. (laughs) But, But instead, he said, it's not just don't murder. It's that you should do your neighbor no harm, and you should also sort of be involved in in aspects of their well-being and make sure that they thrive in their lives. So to him, it, it wasn't just the absence of harm. It was the presence of good. And so what I'm suggesting as an alternate Christian sexual ethic, rather than saying, here's this tiny circle everyone has to fit into, is to say, look, consent 
and mutuality are what the World Health Organization says are a baseline um, ethic in terms of sexual health. But what I'm adding to consent and mutuality is what I call concern. So that it's not just an absence of no and an absence of harm, but it's the presence of good. As you write in the book, this new Christian sexual ethic is one that's based not on a standardized list of thou shalt nots, but on concern for each other's flourishing. Right. Is casual sex holy? I guess that's that's something that I'm asking people to honestly engage uh, a conversation around rather than having the church give you an automatic answer for it. I think there's more to be had in exploring the conversation around it than by just deciding what the answer is right away. And so I would be curious to see what those conversations sound like. Like in our congregation, we spent a long time having these conversations very openly and, and sort of discussing them with each other. What what I'm uninterested in is heaping on more shame on top of people who have already been so deeply shamed by the church's teachings around sexuality. People like who? Well, uh, gay and lesbian folks, people who um, had, uh, you know, have sex with people they're not married to, people who are asexual, people who are transgender, uh, people who are intersex, like anybody who doesn't fit in this very black and white scheme of thinking that the church seems to hand down is is excluded. And the image I use in the book is that I was on this airplane and I looked down at these circles, you know, the geometry of industrial agriculture. Culture where you see these brown and green circles. Oh, on the you're farms. flying over yeah. the center of the country. Yeah, yeah. And so I would, as a city girl who doesn't know anything about farming, I'm like, why in the world would farmers plant circles of crops in lots that are clearly square? But it ends up actually just outside of Denver in the 1940s. This guy Frank Zyback in. invented the center pivot irrigation system. So essentially allowing the watering system to pivot on a central point and that uh, so that crops are watered in circular patterns. They aren't planted in circular patterns. And so what it feels like is that the 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 center pivot irrigation of the church's teachings around sex and gender and sexuality what happens is it waters only the people in that center, but God planted so many of us in the corners. And so I think my desire for this book was just this really deeply pastoral one to say, here's some water for those of us who are planted in the corners. You um, have observed that especially in evangelical Christianity, purity and holiness are often equated with one another. And you you search in this book for why that might be and why the church has been so interested in dictating what a sex life and a love life should be. And you ask a friend who's not Christian, why do you think the church has tried to control sexuality throughout the ages? And his answer was, I guess I always assumed the church saw sex as competition. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, do you think he's right? Um, yes, because I think that on some level, both what we are seeking in religion and spirituality and what we're seeking in sex is sometimes this alleviation of existential aloneness, that tapping at the window that so many of us feel, and that I think that through union with another person or union with God, there's an alleviation of that 
aloneness in a sense. There's union and that we don't have that existential angst. It's just alleviated for that moment, both with religion and with sex. Um, but but then it made me go, okay, then what is holiness? To me, holiness is union. It's It's when one thing is unified with another thing and it becomes a third thing. And so singing in harmony, breastfeeding a baby, collective bargaining, dancing, there's so many aspects of what I think is like holiness, which is always about union with, but purity is different. Purity is about it purity delivers our drug of choice, which is knowing who we're better than. So in a way, purity is about separation from and and holiness is about union with. And so but we pretend they're interchangeable because purity is just easier to regulate than holiness is. In several places in the book, you invoke the life of Jesus. So let me have you read an excerpt um, from page 26. Jesus seemed to want connection with those around him, not separation. He touched human bodies deemed unclean as if they themselves were holy, dead little girls, lepers, menstruating women. People of his day were disgusted that Jesus' disciples would eat with unwashed hands, and they tried to shame him for it. But he responded, it is not what enters the mouth that makes one unclean but what comes out of it that defiles. He was loyal to the law, just not at the expense of the people. Jesus kept violating boundaries of decency to get to the people on the other side of that boundary who'd been wounded by it. Those who were separated from the others, the motherless, the sex workers, the victims, the victimizers, he cared about real holiness, the connection of things human and divine, the unity of sinners, the coming together of that which was formerly set apart. Pastor Nadia Bolsweber reading from her new book, Shameless, A Sexual Reformation. She's the founder of the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver. Bowles-Weber is calling for a new Christian sexual ethic, one that's based not on a standardized list of thou shall nots, but on concern for each other's flourishing. Now, obviously, the topic isn't suited to all ages. Uh, Nadia, you have a son and a daughter. Has it been harder to practice what you preach when it comes to your own family? Hmm. Well, it was uh, when they were younger. Uh, I I just remember like my mom, uh, the my like when I got the talk. Basically, my mom handed me a book, and I think literally she was backing up, stepping back, and saying like, <laughs> "If you have any questions, let me know." And then I was like, "Oh, I'm going to do better. I'm going to do better." And then when my kids were growing up, you know, like I, I, in 2005, I was like, "Oh, I'm we're going to have the talk with them," and. Uh, and then in 2006, we were we were like, yeah, we're going to have to talk with them. <laughs> you know, it just and it just it was so hard because I didn't want I had just so many of my own hang ups and shame and sadness around this topic. And I just didn't know how to not have that get in the way. And I wanted them to have a freer view and I wanted them to have a really healthy view of sex. And so um, then in, when, when we did do the talk, uh, we handed them a book and said, if you have any questions, let us know. 
So just to say, were you backing away? I was, I think, probably (laughs) stepping away. But um, but then I, you know, reading, doing all the work for this book, and just sort of dealing with some of my own issues, and being a divorced woman, and um. I sort of worked through my own stuff. I didn't want my kids to have to step in my stuff to get to me around this topic. And so when they were teenagers, it was much better. And I was able to have really very non-anxious conversations with them. And of course, the stuff about wanting them to be safe and and wanting them to be respectful of others and of themselves. But I really wanted to give them the message that I want you to love sex. Like, I want sex to be a good and positive and beautiful thing in your life. Um, And so I think that is a message our young people also need to have. I'm actually testifying at the state legislature on Thursday. I I just want to go back to that line. Yeah. I want you... To love sex. Right. I mean, it's wouldn't, just, wouldn't there be any number of parents who'd be sort of mortified at the thought of telling their children that? I think it, it might be hard to think about telling them that, but just take a moment and think about what it might mean for their lives, for that to be a really beautiful, healthy, joy-filled part of who they are, rather than secret and shame-filled and shut down and, you know, twisted. What about the concern that that will lead to them having more sex or unsafe sex? Well, or... I, I've found, at least in my research and doing the interviews for this book, yeah. that the more shame somebody has about sex, the more compulsive and damaging their behaviors around it are. Whether it's just complete sexual anorexia or if it's um, compulsive Uh, behaviors around it. So I think shame is like, if we could bottle it as a fuel source, it could easily replace fossil fuels. (laughs) I mean, it's a powerful thing. So I think if you address the shame, then the unhealthy behaviors seem to um, diminish rather than, than attacking the behaviors and increasing the shame. And it starts the cycle all over again. Indeed, this book is not just a reflection of your own experience. You gathered a lot of stories from the congregation that you founded in Denver, this house for all sinners and saints. And you asked parishioners three questions. Growing up, what messes, messages did you receive from the church about sex and the body? Two, how did these messages affect you? And three, how have you navigated your life as a result as an adult? What what stood out in the answers? Well, first of all, I I when I first put the call out saying, "Hey, would anybody be willing to have this conversation with me?" I was shocked at how many people immediately said yes. They'd never been asked these questions and they were ready to answer them, and I was surprised by that. Um, I was shocked by how often the issue of sexual assault and sexual trauma came up in my interviews, um, how often that was related to their experiences in church, honestly. Um, That is at the hands of some trusted person in the church? Correct. I Mm -hmm. mean, the thing about purity culture is it is deeply rooted Uh, It is deeply related to what we call rape culture. Um, If the church is telling girls that their bodies are not their own and their father's putting a ring on their hand when they're 11 saying, you're going to promise me and God that you won't have sex until another man puts a ring on your finger when he's your husband and telling girls their bodies are not their own and also telling young girls, look, uh, boys can't control their sexual nature unlike you. So it's up to you to never tempt them and 
to not wear clothes that might make them think about sex. And if you're fooling around, you have to draw the line and stop it because at some point a boy will become so aroused that he can't stop. I was given these messages very directly in the conservative Christian church. You also point out that boys don't tend to wear purity rings. Yeah, I thought they didn't, but I I did have people mail me their purity rings for an art project, and I got a couple from men. From so men. I had not heard of that before, but, but yeah. Th- that's, um, that's a bold thing to say, that purity culture and rape culture are, if not one in the same, related to each other. And I, I just want to push back on that sure. idea, mm-hmm. because it, it would, um, I think, strike some people as deeply what they are not intending with purity culture. Well, I think um, you always have to parse out, like, there's a difference between what people intend and what the result is. And if if people only focus on what their intention was, then they're never going to acknowledge the harm that that what they're doing is causing in another person's life. And there's never going to be any healing. And so if I'm in a place of compassion, which really is rare for me. But if I can get there, um, (laughs) I've been dabbling in it a little bit recently. So uh, if I can be in a space of compassion, I can see that the purity movement in America was a a reaction to the AIDS crisis on some level. And I think that there were parents who got together and they were like, sex is killing people. How do we keep our children safe? So Mm. I think that like in, in in a compassionate moment, I can see that. But then you look at the the result of it, and there was so much harm done that I'm concerned for the harm. Thank you for being with us. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks, Ryan. Nadia Balls-Weber is an evangelical Lutheran pastor, founder of the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver. Her new book is called Shameless, A Sexual Reformation. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A hundred years ago, a young landscape architect with the Forest Service, Arthur Carhart, made sure a remote lake in western Colorado stayed undeveloped. That is Trapper's Lake between Meeker and Yampa. A century later, Carhart is considered a forefather of wilderness protection. And yet he wasn't necessarily a purist on the topic. Let's talk about this guy's life and his legacy with someone who has and had a very similar job. Jim Bedwell, pardon me, is retired as chief landscape architect with the Forest Service. Hi, Jim. Hi. Nice to be here, Ryan. So in a state as outdoorsy as this one, uh, we have to get something out of the way first. Arthur Carhart is not the guy behind the clothing brand that makes overalls and hunting gear. That's Hamilton Carhart. Uh, Arthur was hired as the first Forest Service landscape architect, March 1st, 1919. And that summer, he was sent to Trapper's Lake as a possible site for development. First off, describe Trapper's Lake for us. Well, Trapper's Lake is a a beautiful alpine lake. It's actually the second largest natural lake in Colorado after after Grand Lake up in Grand County. It sits at an elevation of 9,600 feet in the flat top mountains, surrounded by square top peaks that carry snow probably about eight months of the year. So it's it's beautiful and it's very remote. Very remote. It's hard to find a town that's anywhere near it. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Uh, I mean, even today with with uh, the interstate and paved roads almost all the way there, it'll take four hours to get there from Denver, probably an hour from Glenwood Springs, which was not a large town then. <laughs> okay, so Arthur uh, met while he was at Trapper's Lake a couple of outdoorsmen who were camping there. And here's Carhart himself in archival tape. It's kind of rough uh, talking about that encounter. And one night they got me in the cook tent and we argued from about 9 until 2 o'clock in the morning about the question of putting the cottages all around the lake. So there was a late night debate about putting cottages around Trapper's Lake. Carhart says the two men left an impression on him. Their argument was the precious qualities of this lake belong to all the people and it's the basic principle of wilderness as against any other use, whatever. So leaving things wild as a primary consideration. Tell us more about what happened at the lake uh, when Carhart returned to Denver from this mission to scope it out for some development. Uh, Sure. Um, Well, he was sent there to plan uh, summer home development, summer cabin development, which was one of the primary ways the Forest Service was providing outdoor recreation at the time. There weren't public campgrounds. There weren't trails and all the things we know today. It was more about providing sites where people could build their own cabins. There were lodges planned and the private sector would provide those, but there really wasn't public recreation. So he was sent there to do a development around this remote lake, this beautiful remote lake. And and after the conversation we just heard about, uh, he went back and said he did his job. He drew it up. <laughs> but he went back and he told his superior, the, the district forester for the Rocky Mountain District, um, we can do it, but I don't think we should. It's not a good idea. There's some places that just should be left wild. And that was a radical idea. He was kind of uh, nervous about that. But the district forester uh, – saw what he was saying and supported him. It was, it was a surprise to Carhart, actually. Wow. And why was that revolutionary at the time? Was was the momentum behind development, behind exploitation? Well, I don't know if you call it exploitation, but uh, the automobile, you know, had been invented uh-huh. and people were starting to own more and more automobiles and they were exploring out into the national forests. The National Park Service had been set up in 1916, and there was a bit of a rivalry between the two agencies uh, to to be relevant to American society. That's why Carhartt was hired, really, to answer the challenge of automobiles out there using the forest, more people getting there, and also to show that the Forest Service could develop recreation. I'd love to listen to an excerpt of a letter from Carhartt to Aldo Leopold, who is another big name in early conservation. This is read by Connie Myers. She's retired uh, from a training center that is actually named for Carhartt. There's a limit to the number of lands of shoreline on the lakes. There's a limit to the number of lakes in existence. There's a limit to the mountainous areas of the world. And there are portions of natural scenic beauty which are God-made and whichever right should be the property of all people. And that has become one of Carhartt's most famous quotes, hasn't it? Absolutely. 
in, in, in essence, national forests were being managed for – they were set up to manage timber and, and watershed and range resources for cattlemen. But he was the first to really express that there were human values and there was a spiritual value to nature that was very – was then and would become even more important to people and our society. Do you think spiritual is a word that Arthur Carhart would have used? Absolutely. Okay. In fact, he did use that. He did use that. Writings. You were the man who'd know. <laughs> yes. So we'll get back to this idea of protecting wilderness. But uh, Carhart also wrote the Forest Service's first recreation master plan. And uh, interestingly, it was for the San Isabel National Forest west of Pueblo. Uh, what prompted an assignment like that? Well, there had been uh, civil unrest and strikes. In fact, uh, in the mid-1910s, uh, the Ludlow Massacre occurred. My goodness, uh, yes. 20 miles north of uh, Trinidad. Uh, this was a coal mine that was supporting Colorado Fuel and Iron, the big steel mills in, in Pueblo. And they're striking, contesting working conditions. 21 people were killed in the Ludlow Massacre. That's right. And, um, you know, the 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 leading citizens of, of Pueblo said, you know, we really need to do something to provide relief for our people. A lot of things like the eight-hour workday came out of that movement and so forth, too. Wait, but are you saying that recreation also came out of the Ludlow Massacre as a as a pipeline, as an avenue for workers. Yeah, so, somewhat indirectly. Huh. John D. Re- Rockefeller was the own CF&I. And Colorado Fuel would, and Iron was the plant. There, there's, yes, Colorado Fuel and Iron in Pueblo. And he was getting a lot of grief. And he, he said, I, I need to provide an outlet for my workers. We need, they need a place to let off the steam. And he actually entered into an – they formed a private association that he funded a large part of to build recreation facilities on the San Isabel. Oh, that's fascinating. So here's a clip of Carhartt talking about this Southern Colorado project. And uh, in April 1920, I went to the uh, San Isabel and worked out the final plan there. Spent all summer in this project. As I arrived in Pueblo, I stopped long enough to talk to the officers of the Recreation Association. So that is the voice of Arthur Carhart, pioneer in wilderness protection and recreation planning. It's been a 100 years since the Forest Service hired Carhart, and we're speaking with someone who had roughly the same job. That's Jim Bedwell. He's U.S. Forest Service chief landscape architect. Uh, Did Carhart spend his whole career with the Forest Service? No. uh, In fact, uh, he he did build. Let me just say one more thing about the the San Isabel plan. Sure. He, given all the his legacy and notoriety about the wilderness idea, Carhart himself said, "In my estimation, the most significant work I did in the U.S. Forest Service was the San Isabel Forest Plan." Coming up with that recreation plan. Yes, because he saw that as a great societal need, and he intended it to not just be a plan for that forest, but a model for all recreation planning across the Forest Service. But he. I'll never look at the San Isabel the same way again. Right. Thank you for that. Very significant. You're welcome. Um, He kept putting in budgets for recreation development to fund not only the San Isabel but other projects that he was working on. 
And although it was supported by his superiors, it didn't go through Congress. And after the second time of not getting funded, he quit at the end of 1922. So less than four years in the Forest Service. And he did an incredible amount of significant work for that amount of time. So he grew impatient, would you say? He with, was with the federal governments. Imagine that. I would say so. You know, he he was he was an uncompromising individual and a very strong advocate. Believed in what he believed in and wasn't afraid to represent that. Help us understand his view of Trapper's Lake, which was not to put you know cabins all around it, and at the same time, you know, develop at least some recreation in southern Colorado, like he clearly saw that there was a balance, not that there should never be any kind of development. How have you understood where he landed? Well, um, he saw that that natural lands and landscapes such as the National Forest really held a spectrum of experiences. And he established this from the wildest, most pristine wilderness to developed camps with big cook tents and lodges and so forth and trails where people could walk and roads where people could drive for scenic beauty. He saw a whole spectrum of recreation experiences that the public was looking for and they were all valid. He really didn't say that one was superior over another. They were all part of people experiencing the natural environment. So what does this century-old history tell us about the Forest Service now and what it's up against? And frankly, what wilderness is perhaps up against? Well, um, I I think Carhartt would be impressed in some ways that um, uh, the Forest Service spends about close to half a billion dollars a year on outdoor recreation in one form or another. Uh, his legacy of landscape architecture, the the peak was about 400 in, in the 80s. The Forest Service was the largest employer of landscape architects in the world. That's now down to 125, 150 or so. Oh, interesting. As funding has dried up and timber sales have subsided uh, somewhat. And... Um, Meanwhile, there's an explosion of use of the National Forest. So I think he would be very concerned that we don't have enough recreation planners, landscape architects, and people that are planning and protecting the resource, planning for those human experiences that hundreds of millions of people experience every year, but channeling that use in a way that that is very positive and protects the environment at the same time. Thank you for being with us. Appreciate your time. All right. Thank you. It was was great. Retired U.S. Forest Service Chief Landscape Architect Jim Bedwell. He helped us mark a century since Arthur Carhart started at the U.S. Forest Service and helped define outdoor recreation and conservation in Colorado and beyond. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The rhetoric ramped up this week. Russia claimed it can launch a hypersonic missile capable of reaching the U.S. in under five minutes. Russian President Vladimir Putin said Moscow is ready for a Cuban missile-style crisis if the U.S. wants one. This comes after the U.S. suspended a nuclear arms treaty with Russia. 
It's all terribly reminiscent of the Cold War, isn't it? The original Cold War lasted decades, of course, but its veterans are often overlooked. Don Stanton wants to change that. He teaches political science at CU Denver, and his latest book profiles these Cold War vets. Don, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ryan. It's good to be here. I think your book really solidified for me that the term veteran isn't just someone in a foxhole or who carried a gun. How does the Cold War expand our understanding of service? Ryan, uh, if you look at the entire Cold War, which ran from 1947 to 1991, you have to look at it in a holistic effect because you have uh, political, economic, and military pieces of that. There were millions of people in the Cold War on both sides of the superpower conflict, but also it involved the allies and it involved various levels of people. Everyone, for example, in the United States was somewhat involved because of the industry base uh, trying to get an atom bomb. We were building one bomb a day. Uh, There was a whole effort to do that and it affected entire communities, families, and the military veterans, who, by the way, the average was about 2.3 million people on active duty during those 40 years. My goodness. And of course, there were specific wars within the Cold War, theaters that we fought in, uh, you know, Korea, Vietnam, etc. But I, I think what you're saying is that the Cold War scoops up a lot of people. And I think when you talk about production, for instance, of nuclear weapons, of Rocky Flats right here in Colorado. The workers there who were exposed to some pretty uh, bad conditions and who consider themselves veterans of the Cold War. You're right, Ryan. Uh, And production at Rocky Flats went from 1952 to 1992. It affected tens of thousands of people. They were producing plutonium triggers. And as you know, There was a big environmental remediation, and there's been health issues for them. If you look back at Colorado, uh, Senator Ed Johnson in 1946 was key. For whom the Johnson Tunnel is named. Exactly. Uh, Big Ed Johnson. Uh, He helped create the Atomic Energy Act of 1946, which opened up development, especially in southwestern Colorado. For example, Yerevan was a specific uranium mining town west of Montrose on the Utah border. And they had a great deal of uranium that came out. Even in 1950, uh, one of my favorite photographs is Miss Atomic Energy 1950 with her court. Miss Atomic Energy? Yes. With her what? Her court. They were in white gowns. And in front of her was a ton of uranium ore, which was her prize. So you can imagine the effect that this had on southwest Colorado, but there were huge environmental and health costs to tens of thousands of workers. This was part of that supply chain for building atomic bombs. So just to be clear, her award for being Miss Atomic Energy was radioactive exposure? Well, it was very low doses, but she got a ton in 1950, which was the year I was born. Uh, And you have to think then of the miners. You have to think of the millers uh, and then through to those who manufactured these weapons. Uh, Of course, Cold War veterans go well beyond Colorado. And I want to focus on some other folks that you profile in this book, Don Stanton. It's called Looking Back at the Cold War. Will you tell me about Roger Stambaugh, who is a P-2 patrol plane commander in Norfolk, Virginia, during the Cuban Missile Crisis? 
Yes, Ryan. He uh, enlisted in the Navy and uh, became a pilot in uh, 1959, 1960. So by 1962, he had been in the Navy for three years. He had flown with his crew of 10 over to Norfolk, Virginia for training for a week. And they went down the next day to pre-flight their plane to go back and found guards on it and a nuclear depth charge, a real one. And he ran across the street to find out what was going on. And an Atlantic fleet admiral said, you now belong to me. It's a Cuban Missile Crisis. It's October 27th of 1962. Fly a night patrol. Go down and try and get the submarines that are accompanying the inbound uh, Soviet ships. And when you find them, call us back and we'll let you know whether or not you're going to use this nuclear depth bomb. And In, if an, in you, an instant, he finds himself on the brink of the, the coldest part of the Cold and War. And as he says, I hadn't been briefed. I was flying off a strange beach, which is Navy talk for out of a strange base. And he said, the admiral said, and if you can't get a hold of us, just use your best judgment. So here he is, 25 years old. and Possibly deciding the fate of the world. That's right. And he, you know, he uh, later became a dentist. He's uh, probably 90 years old now. But this came out. And at the same time, under those those uh, four Soviet submarines, they hadn't had good communication with Moscow for many hours. So they thought World War III had started. So in their protocol, the captain and the political officer had decided to use a nuclear torpedo. And luckily on that one submarine, the flotilla commander, who was a captain, Archipov, voted no. So they didn't start a nuclear war. I think what it makes you realize is that so often we think international affairs are in solid hands, that these decisions are being made uh, in, in nuanced meetings in Washington or in Moscow. But in, in this aspect of the Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, when really the tension between the United States and the Soviets was all focused on this island just off our coast, this was in the hands and minds of some inexperienced young people. There were instances of that. And thankfully, as the Cold War went on, both sides, the Soviet Union and the U.S., were able to establish protocols which stabilized things. I think of the phone, this infamous phone that right. gave a direct line between sure. Washington and Moscow. That was, I think, in 1963. And it was one of the stabilizing factors. Why did you want to write a book about the Cold War? Well, I had been teaching several classes at uh, CU Denver, and I noticed that when I mentioned the word Cold War or Vietnam or Korea, often uh, there was not too much comment and it was vague. And so I decided to put together a timeline. And at the same time, I started looking back during my 24 years in the Navy, uh, seven of my friends were killed in various things. And I wanted to put down what they were doing often in remote places to show this. And also I reached out to over 50 civilian and military veterans to try and get sense. And I finally got 30 different stories. To really give a sense for how broad and diverse the Cold War was, this this long conflict, I, I want to talk about the Russian operation Snowball. Right. A really scary time for the U.S. It was. It was 1954. And of course, this was a secret operation. Now, you have to put in perspective, 
that after World War II, we were the only ones with a nuclear weapon and the only ones that could deliver it with strategic bombers. So our view was we have the upper hand. No one would dare operate. However, we found out through secret means that they had taken uh, 45,000 people from the Soviet army. They had dropped a uh, 40-kiloton nuclear weapon, and then they had prepared many of these units to maneuver around and by the radiated area. And that shocked America's military and political planners because that meant that the Russians weren't just going to kowtow, but they were going to be able to operate in a radiated battlefield. So we had to change our military doctrine. And you found that the army created short-range nuclear weapons, and there was a proliferation after that. So the idea there was that if a draw, if a bomb was dropped, that wasn't the end. They That's were, correct. They were prepared then to support that with even more military force and to operate exactly in that like nuclear winter environment? They were. And the other thing was they were building themselves up very quickly to be able to respond, and we did not have the upper hand. The Cold War was dominated by this icy relationship between the United States and Russia, then the Soviet Union. Having done this research, are there ways in which the current relationship between these two countries today is reminiscent of the Cold War, do you think? I think um, it's important to realize that we're in a, a different time. We've evolved from this. I think it is important to go back and take a look at it and see some of the lessons that were learned. Um, for example, we relied greatly on our allies, both NATO and proxies around the world. And it's extremely important to have those allies now to help us in political and military actions. That, that added stability to what Correct. was otherwise a pretty unstable That's right. history. That's exactly right. And so you think that, that that ought to be looked at going forward. Thank you for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Don Stanton teaches political science at CU Denver. His most recent book is Looking Back at the Cold War. It also profiles, by the way, Soviet veterans. We first spoke in July. Finally today, a Colorado connection to the Spider-Verse. Maybe you know that the Oscar for Best Animated Feature went to Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Well, the soundtrack features Denver rapper Trev Rich, who emcees on the DJ Khalil track, Elevate. Stepped out of my zone. I had to get out of the lung and figure it out on my own. And I know what I really want now. Can't stop me, can't break it. But don't kill me, go make it. Shoot for the stars, no second. And now I see clear in HD. Gotta go hard, gotta go hard. I ain't got time to wait. I ain't got time. I gotta go high, gotta go high. I gotta elevate. I gotta elevate. They wanna fight, they wanna fight. I'm just gonna let them hang. You 
slinger, so a gun slinger, no millimeter. This is my arena. I'm the black widow with a bad stinger, and I make you scream like a bad singer. I'm everything that you want to That's be. Elevate featuring Denver's own Trev Rich off the soundtrack to Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. As we said, the film just won the Oscar for Best Animated Feature. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. Thank you for spending time with us. You can find us on Twitter at Colorado Matters, and we are Colorado Public Radio on Facebook. This is CPR News.